Hey there, fellow Year of Polygamy listeners. This is Glenn Ostlin from the Infants on Thrones podcast, and Lindsay has asked me to put together this little promo to share with you some very exciting news. First of all, it goes without saying that Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years, but I'm going to say it anyway. Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years, and now she's ready to take it to the next level. Now, what exactly is that next level? Have any of you listened to the Serial podcast? From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. How about S-Town? Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. Finding Richard Simmons? Yeah, that Richard Simmons. You know the guy. Short shorts, bedazzled tank tops, a big curly head of hair, halfway between Jimi Hendrix and Little Orphan Annie. Now, there are some really amazing podcasts out there right now that tell stories in a carefully crafted, highly produced, very engaging way. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if the stories that Lindsay has uncovered here on the Europe Polygamy podcast could be told in that same serial kind of style? Well, that's exactly what Lindsay wants to do. And I'm going to help her do it. And all of you can too. Because now I've been telling Lindsay all about how great it has been since Infants on Throne started our Patreon page this past June. So guess what? Lindsay is starting a Patreon page for Year of Polygamy, too. I know, right? And you can all support her as her patrons. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help support Lindsay's efforts, not only to keep Year of Polygamy podcast continuing, but to also start crafting a new sister podcast, a, I don't know, Year of Polygamy storytellers kind of thing. So that something like this... There is supposedly a riot that occurs as these men are seen with the women. The men, the Mormon men are getting more and more upset. There was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Could sound a little more like something like this. There is supposedly a riot that occurs as these men are seen with the women. There was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Now, I know that's kind of cheesy sounding. You know, it just added some music, some sound effects. But what we would do is actually script out some stories, would create seasons and would have episodes and would craft it to tell the many compelling stories that there are to tell from the Year of Polygamy podcast. Now, like I said, Lindsay will continue to bring you the Year of Polygamy podcast as she has in the past. That's not going to change. But your support on Patreon will free up some time and resources so that Lindsay can focus on a new direction for a sister podcast. Plus, you really just want to see this woman succeed, don't you? I do. So head over to Patreon forward slash Year of Polygamy and show your support for Lindsay today. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? The 
Sunstone Theological Society presents the singer Swap Siege, Revelation or Retaliation, recorded live at the 1988 Sunstone Theological Symposium, held August 17th through the 20th, 1988. We take you to the University Park Hotel in Salt Lake City, Utah, where the program is just now beginning. Uh, please, them. Uh, the subject is the singer Swap Siege, Revelation or Retaliation. Uh, the paper is going to be given by Ogden Kraut. And I knew Mr. Kraut by reputation. I uh, uh, had heard quite a few books he'd, he'd written. Um, and a few years ago, I had read a book by a Protestant theologian that was called Was Jesus Married? And the first book that I had run across of Ogden Kraut is entitled Jesus Was Married. <laughs> So the Protestant raises the question, and Mr. Kraut answered it. Uh, he will be presenting his paper after, uh, and afterwards there will be time for questions. Mr. Kraut. Well, what would you say to a friend of yours who told you he just had a revelation to blow up a church building? Would you say, hey, that sounds like a great revelation? Or would you tell him that he must have been talking to Beelzebub, the prince of demons? Well, that was the dilemma I was confronted with last January when Adam Swap told me his, his reasons for dynamiting the church. But I decided to follow the advice given by Brigham Young, who once said, When you see a spiritual manifestation you do not understand, be quick to see, quick to hear, quick to understand, but slow to judge. Well, several days before the church bombing, I made plans to take a Sunday dinner up to Vicki Singer and her family. But that Saturday night, the news of the Marion Stakes Center dynamiting was televised, implicating the singers and the swaps. At first, I threw up my hands in despair and decided I wouldn't have anything to do with it. The next morning, I decided that I better try to do something to avoid the tragic outcome that happened to John Singer. After more than 10 years of being on the defensive against the church and local and state governments, this was the family's first serious act of aggression. It came like a phoenix out of the ashes of John Singer. Why did such a peaceful, pioneering-type family change into one that caused such an explosive outcome? To answer this question is necessary to understand John, the patriarch of the Singer family, the cause that he was fighting, the problems he faced, and the way he thought. He took a strong stand for educating his children at home, and he felt the same way as Brigham Young who said, We are the guardians of our children. Their training and education are committed to our care. And if we do not understand, do not under, ourselves pursue a course which will save them from the influence of evil, when we are weighed in the balance, we will be found wanting. Unquote. And from Joseph F. Smith, who said, But some Latter-day Saints are so liberal and unsuspecting that they would just as soon send their children to Mr. Pierce down here as to anybody else. I would not do it. However good a man Mr. Pierce may be, he should not teach one of my children as long as I have the wisdom and the intelligence to teach him myself, or could find a man of my own faith to do it for me. This is true doctrine, and no man can take any exceptions to it." Unquote. Many years ago, Ezra Taft Benson emphasized that the federal government should have no control in the field of education. 
He said, there is absolutely nothing in the Constitution which authorizes the federal government to enter into the field of education. Federal taxes for education means federal control over education. No matter how piously the national planners tell us that they will not dictate policies to local school systems, it is inevitable that they will in the long run. In fact, they already are doing it. Unquote. Well, John and Vicki Singer understood those rights and freedoms, and they had studied the scriptures, the Constitution, the teachings of the Founding Fathers of the LDS Church and the American nation. They were also familiar with the U.S. Supreme Court Justice William Brenneman's statement in 1963, which said, Attendance in public school has never been compulsory. Parents remain morally and constitutionally free to choose in their academic environment in which they wish their children to be educated." Unquote. Well, therefore, in 1973, they felt justified, in fact, duty-bound, to take their children out of public school to protect them from the vices and corruption that were so prevalent there and to provide them with a better education at home, just as many other concerned American families are doing. But this course of action and the method in which they executed it resulted in a long string of legal battles over whose right it is to really educate those children. In fact, the question that once came up, do we own the children or does the state own the children? That's just about the final line. Well, following is just a brief outline of the main events between 1973 and January 1979 when John was killed. March 29, 1973, John Singer took his children out of public school. 1974, request granted for testing, monitoring, and evaluation of Singer students by school authorities. September 1975, John Singer refused further testing with children. Harassment began. June 15, 1976, court hearings began in Summit County. August 1977, trial held and Singers were found guilty with a bench warrant issued for their arrest. <clears throat> November 1977, deposition with Judge Backman. Sentenced 60 days in jail, $299 fine. December 16, 1977, John supplied witnesses but would not attend his hearing. Warrant was issued for his arrest. January 3, 1978, a new hearing. Witnesses supplies but Singer family did not attend because of threats that the children be taken and they would be found guilty of child abuse. March 4, 1978, Judge John Farr Larson ordered contempt of court, issued warrant for arrest. Judge Larson said in court that he was not impressed with those who say God's law is above the law of the land. July 1978, John is afraid to leave his property, but he feels he's protected on his own land. July 17, 1978, John Singer took a second wife, Shirley Black. This was just six months before his death. November 1978, John's brother Harold met with Governor Scott Matheson and informed him that John would never fire the first shot. Early January 1979, continual snowmobile activity surrounding the Singer farm. January 18, 1979, John left his property to go to the mail at the end of the lane, and he was shot and killed. Vicki went to jail, and the seven children went to a foster home. During the early stages of John Singer's trouble over the school issue, I gave him many papers and legal documents and cases and decisions to help him with his homeschool program. Even though his educational problems were eventually resolved, his situation seemed to get worse. On one particular television interview, he said this, 
why is it so hard that an individual cannot just plainly obtain his freedoms and his rights to do in his own family as he pleases? Why is it so hard to accomplish? Why must it always be that a man should sacrifice or compromise on his beliefs or liberties in order to be able to just get along? Well, a few weeks before John's death, his yard was filled with cameramen, news media, and visitors. And I came up there and saw it and said to him, John, for a man who wants peace and privacy, you're a failure. And he busted out laughing with a very boisterous laugh, which was one of his distinctions. But his situation went from bad to worse. About ten days before he was shot, I spent the weekend at his farm. And during the visit, I noticed several snowmobiles buzzing around the place. They were even coming up there at night. And I asked him about him, and he said, well, there's someone working for the police. He said, I think they're going to use violence against me. And I said, John, they're not that dumb. And a few days later, he was dead. Well, certainly Vicki Singer deserved a day in court either to settle a claim or else have a jury settle her mind as to the proper course of justice and what happened. I took Vicki and a few other family members up to Wyoming to meet with attorney Jerry Spence. Vicki told him it would be a battle over constitutional rights and correct principles, not for money or out of vengeance. He agreed to take the case. Spence and his staff spent many months preparing a wrongful death suit, but Judge Winder refused to hear the case, giving the excuse a lack of evidence. When one of the attorneys on the staff heard that the Supreme Court had denied Vicki her chance for a trial, he actually wept. And he said, I, never in my life have I been so ashamed of my profession. During the ensuing nine years, the family continued to fight for their constitutional rights and freedoms, but it was even more difficult without John's strong leadership. There were serious problems with the neighbors who tried to get them off their land, but the courts awarded Vicki legal title to their home and their land. There has been a continual battle over water rights, culminating in the undermining of their springs, so they had no water for a garden, a lawn, or trees, and barely a trickle for culinary purposes. Financial struggles, persecution, and other stressful problems have plagued the family ever since John's tragic death. Then Adam Swap and his cousin Roger Bates from Fairview, Utah, entered the picture a few months later. In September of 1980, they married Heidi and Suzanne, the two oldest singer daughters. Adam later took the third daughter, Charlotte, as his second wife. Adam had been extremely interested in the John Singer story, but now as part of the family, he took up the banner with fervor. Only a few weeks ago, Adam wrote in a letter, Knowing of the great injustices done against John, Vicki, and myself at the hands of this wicked people, I knew I had to make a stand against it. For to remain silent, knowing the truth, and not standing against wickedness, you became that which you submit to through your silence." Unquote. So Adam felt that stronger measures were necessary in bringing Vicki's hardships and persecutions to light. It was not enough to just put into writing the rem reminder to these Christian leaders of their obligation to the widows and orphans. But what was the real motive behind dynamiting the Church? What drove him to spray paint on others' property and interfere with neighbors' claim to water, to defy a law officer and resist arrest warrant? What gave Adam the confidence that he could win a battle against both the state of Utah and the federal government? According to Adam, it was because of a revelation that he had received.
Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another story into the insights of Mormon fundamentalist and Mormon plural marriage. Here we go again. If this is your first time tuning in, the podcast is made to go in order. And so I would recommend you go all the way back to episode one and start in order, especially for this episode, because this episode definitely needs some context to make sense. So if you aren't going to start all the way back at episode one, at least start at the episode previous to this, the story of John and Vicki Singer. That's going to set you up for what we're going to be talking about today. This story is really complex and a bit complicated. I'm going to be using a lot of audio clips from all over the place to piece this together so you can hear the story told in the own words of the people who experienced them. This, of course, is the second part to last episode, the singer uh, standoff, and now we're going to be talking about the singer swap standoff in 1988. Many of you are in Utah maybe remember this if you were around, and if you're like me, and you were a young child, maybe you didn't know anything about this. But Adam Swap is alive and well, and he has several interviews online, and I'm going to pull a little bit from those, and I would definitely recommend that you listen to it. I'm going to link all of those. We have a few Sunstone presentations and things like that. This certainly won't be the end to this story, but this will give you good context into Adam and Charlotte Swap and their story. So without further ado, I'm going to let Adam tell his own bio. This comes from an interview he did with an evangelical Christian group, and uh, you can find that linked on my site. So here's Adam talking about growing up. Uh, My name is Adam William Swap. My first name is spelled with two Ds, my middle name with two Ls, and my last name with two Ps. Okay. Uh, I give my permission to uh, use this in any way you see fit. Namely, to bring glory to God. Amen. All right. Uh, I was born in 1961 in Salt Lake and uh, born to Mormon parents and uh, raised uh, right in the middle of Mormonism. You're raised in a traditional mainstream Mormon family? We we lived on the avenues in Salt Lake, one of the oldest neighborhoods in Salt Lake. And the house that we lived in, we found out that it was a polygamous home and the house next door, uh, I guess the back in the early 1900s or late 1800s, the uh, guy had two wives in both houses. Um, We were mainstream Mormon and I remember it was a time of turmoil in the 60s and the early 70s. It was a time of uh, a lot of uh, the hippie movement and people uh, asking questions. And <clears throat> I remember there was some kind of a march uh, that went on downtown, something to do with the blacks in the uh, Mormon church. And and I remember my dad, he's uh, He's educated, he's a teacher, and uh, quite well-read, and he, uh, he started researching and studying, and he saw that 
the church before 1890 and the church after, the Mormon church, they were two different churches. And he had books and things on it. And, and I remember as a kid, there was always kind of a question. I didn't really know anything. We, we lived in Salt Lake. I was still quite young. And uh, I remember that uh, one of the big things was is that in the Mormon church, it's, uh, it's an end times church. And, you know, in Christianity, that's the same. We do believe Christ is coming back, but the focus is on being prepared. You know, food storage, uh, um, how to survive. Um, and one of the prayers in our family was, was that we could move out of the city. And uh, I remember that uh, we would always pray, family, family prayer, Lord, please find us a little farm out in the country. And uh, I remember dad always asking us kids who wants to milk the cow, you know, who wants to gather the eggs and who wants to raise the garden. Well, we never thought it would happen. It was for years we prayed that. And when I was 12, uh, we finally, I was going to go to Bryant Junior High and I remember mom and dad seeing that a bunch of kids had been busted for sniffing glue and they said, we don't want our kids doing that. So they found a place down in St. Pete County, beautiful little place, Fairview. And uh, we moved down and uh, it was it was wonderful. It was a great move. And how old were you when this happened? Twelve years old. Okay. So you were all on board with that? Oh yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was a great move. And, really enjoy it down there. We still live down there. But uh, I remember growing up, uh, all of the tokens of Mormonism, uh, we, that's all I knew. Uh, we would ride our bikes up at uh, the city cemetery up uh, by Lindsay Gardens, and we would look for the old uh, famous Mormon headstones and uh, we would go to Temple Square and we'd look at the temple and we'd, we'd see all the signs and symbols, the phases of the moon, the five-pointed stars, the handshaking, the all-seeing eye, the spires, and everything meant something. And always a mystery, always, uh, uh, always very intriguing. We went to the, the, the North 21st Ward, which was the uh, one of the oldest wards in the city, and they was had. Back when you were in Salt Lake. That was when we were in Salt Lake. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going back to Salt Lake. Um, they tore that building down, and I happened to turn eight years old when they did, and because of that, I got baptized in the basement of uh, the Tabernacle Building. They actually have a font there. Um, I always thought that was a pretty big deal, but. Uh, Brigham Young's house, the Beehive house, that was, we, we toured that a number of times. That was uh, part of our history. I have a couple of distant great-great-aunts that married Brigham Young in St. George, and uh, he was an integral part of our history. Um, I do remember in there, uh, particularly, he had a desk that had all these cubby holes, 
And the reason that means something to me is because Brigham Young had made a, one of his discourses that I'd read years later was that if you have a question about anything, roll it up and pigeonhole it. And in my mind, I always would roll it up and I'd pigeonhole it in his desk. And after a while, that desk got pretty full. But that was my visual when you had a problem with, you know, uh, how does the Adam God doctrine work? How does, you know, uh, all of these different things work? I would always pigeonhole it and, and put it in that imaginary desk. But now, were these conflicts between what former Mormonism had taught and what the current church was teaching? That right. See, now, I, I was um, raised in the modern-day church, right. and one of the things in our home was Mormonism was all truth. Okay, Mormonism wasn't interpreted truth. Mormonism was all truth. That's what we were told. It's truth. If it's truth, it's Mormonism. And so we were always in a hunt for the truth. And the idea of questioning Mormonism as truth, that wasn't really the issue. It was, what is true in Mormonism? And one of the doctrines of Mormonism is that the church, the early first century church, um, it fell away. They had a priesthood and they couldn't pass it on because of wickedness. So it stopped. That, that apostolic succession stopped. Um, so what happened in, in Mormonism is Joseph Smith restored it. Now, if Joseph Smith restored this authority, priesthood authority, then it stands to reason that if God doesn't change and His Word is eternal, if he gives a, a word to a prophet, say Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or John Taylor, then that's the word of God. If another prophet comes along and he contradicts what that former prophet said, then by logic, it doesn't add up. So the succession then stops again as it did in the first century. That's, that was my sense of it. So either Either that whole thing was wrong, which wasn't an issue at the time, or the latter-day prophets weren't really prophets. And so... Now, is this something that you as a family were, were coming to? No, or no. It is not some. That's my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters. Sister is uh, there. They're on their own journey. And... Um, most of my brothers are still in the church. And, but my journey went to where um, I studied. And I, I was going to the University of Utah, and I spent more time studying the old Mormon doctrines, uh, Journal of Discourses, and I had a number of uh, Fundamentalist books by Ogden Kraut, Norman C. Pierce, uh, B. Harvey Allred, and it just plainly spelled it out. If uh, these these men who were prophets uh, spoke of the Adam God doctrine of plural marriage being the eternal celestial marriage, 
celestial marriage was plural marriage. It wasn't just being married in a temple, it was actually plural marriage. And so it was like, if, if these are the doctrines, um, where do I stand? And one of the uh, sections in the Doctrine and Covenants speaks about a setting and order. That there will be one mighty and strong who comes and sets the church of house, uh, the house of God in order. And so that started to make sense. Okay, well, if it's going to be set in order, then it must have been out of order. And if it's out of order, then where do I stand? So I sought the old covenants, the old teachings, and I, uh, it was quite a journey. I was always taught that uh, there were two churches, and you either belong to the Church of God or you belong to the Church of the Devil, and that speaks of in the Book of Mormon, and it just generally makes sense. And that was where I wanted to belong. I wanted to belong to the Church of God, and whatever it took to do that, that's what I wanted. Okay, so these videos put out by Sacred Groves Ministries are actually really valuable. And if, like I said, if you're interested in this topic, you need to go back and watch the interview. Watch Adam as he talks about this. He comes across as a very approachable, serene man. He's got dark eyes, uh, dark hair, and he's got sort of that Mormon Utah, Utah Mormon drawl about him when he talks. And even though he has now converted to mainstream Christianity, when Adam talks, he still very much uses Mormon language, as you can hear in these interviews. Although Adam grew up in the mainstream church, he, did, he talks about in this interview how he discovers fundamentalism. And I'm going to play another clip because I think that this is an important thing to understand. When we think about how people can convert to fundamentalism or how people end up like Adam does in such a dramatic story. This is how. I mean, Adam is a regular guy. You can see it when you're listening to him, when you're talking to him, when you're watching him. He's just a normal guy with a good heart who is just seeking truth, which as anyone who has grown up in Mormonism knows, that is what we are taught to do. So let's hear how Adam turns in, you know, from this normal kid riding his bike around with his friends in central Utah to someone who ends up in prison for um, some violent acts. There was an incident that I had when I was in junior high. We had moved down to Fairview, and a friend of mine, his name was Stephen, he told me at, at school, he says, I've got something I want to tell you. And I says, well, what is it? And he says, I can't tell you. And I says, well, then why did you tell me? <laughs> and I said, I chased him around the school all day. He really intrigued me. No, my dad swore, swore me to secrecy that I couldn't tell. And I said, Stephen, you got to tell me. And I remember at the end of the day, we had to ride a bus from Moroni to Mount Pleasant in Fairview. I grabbed hold of him. I threw him up against the bus. And I said, Stephen, tell me. And he said, uh, oh, you can't tell anyone. He said, my dad told me that Adam is our God. And I said, what? Adam is our God? 
it just, I couldn't even understand what he was talking about. He says, yeah, I can't, and he would not tell me anymore. That was it. So I got home, dad got home from work. I asked mom, she knew nothing about it. And I asked dad, and dad said, I don't know. And I remember him and mom going in the other room and talking about it. And they came out and they said, we can't tell you. Now that's the worst thing yeah. you can tell a kid, we can't tell you. So what's your credit say? I says, dad, what's this about investigating all truth? I mean, we had books on everything. We from uh, flying saucers to uh, esoteric knowledge, uh, hollow earth, uh, Bigfoot, you name it. We're, there were no questions that we couldn't ask in our home. And when he says, I can't tell you, it was like, are you serious? And I finally, I says, Dad, you got to tell me. And he says, look, I'll let you read it for yourself. Whatever you do with it, it's your business. And I'll never forget, he got out the Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 50. And Brigham Young said, he is the only God with whom we have to do. And that was a big deal. And I remember asking it at church. And the fact the guy I asked I had no idea even what I was talking about. But that was a milestone in my uh, journey. When Swap was 18, he saw something on TV about John Singer. Now, of course, we talked about John Singer last episode. John Singer is the man who was up in Marion, Utah, having a standoff with the government about homeschooling his kids. He was also a Mormon fundamentalist and a polygamist. And John Singer wanted to teach his children an education that he wanted, not a secularized education from the state. Adam had already grown up meeting a few polygamists here and there. They were really intriguing to him. Uh, he already knew that there was some higher doctrine and things that they couldn't talk about. And he becomes more and more disenchanted with the LDS Church. He was now a student at the University of Utah. He became obsessed with the John Singer story. And he had, you know, ever since this time of finding out about the Adam-God theory, talks about how he sort of dove headfirst into the Journal of Discourses and started reading Ogden Kraut and all of these books. So he knew something was off. He knew the LDS Church was out of order or not telling the whole story. So when John Singer shows up on his TV in the news, he feels like this is almost like an answer to prayers. It let him know that other people were doing something with their faith, and it spoke to him. So he makes a plan to meet John Singer, but he finds out that John Singer is dead. So he eventually drives up to Marion, Utah to meet with John Singer's widow, Vicki, and his family. And, of course, they all hit it off because within 11 months after he meets the family, he marries their oldest daughter, Heidi. He says, of course, that this happens after he has some dreams and revelations. Um, and then he marries... Heidi's sister, Charlotte, too. And I'm going to let Charlotte tell that story in just a minute. But Adam will talk about how he remembered Brigham Young's teachings on polygamy and knew that this was a path he was going to live. So as a young teenager, he sort of becomes radicalized in this doctrine and dives in, you know, full immersion into the principle. 
So let's let Charlotte tell her story now. Charlotte, of course, is Heidi's sister. She would have been Adam Swap's second wife. I'm not including the first part of her interview here where she talks about the death of her father, but I definitely recommend going to the source and listening to it. It's really interesting, and she talks about how she was a young girl when her father was killed in the original standoff, you know, years before she had met Adam Swap and how it had impacted their family, and I think it's really important. But I want to talk, I want to share where she talks about meeting Adam Swap here. Adam, my husband, um, came up to the property, to our farm, in 1980. So it was a a little bit after, a year after Dad was killed. And <sighs> have see, first, well, when I first met my husband, I mean, when I first met my soon-to-be husband, he, he was, he was a breath of fresh air. He, he was full of energy. He was he was very positive, very upbeat, um, and not to mention he was way way good looking. <laughs> the first minute I saw him, I I knew this is the one. Him coming onto the scene was such a blessing. It helped fill that hole that was there, that was taken. I mean, that was left, I should say. He first married my sister, my oldest sister. And then uh, after he married her three years later, he married me, which my sister, uh, when they were engaged that night, I was just crying because it was like, <laughs> I liked him so much, and my sister comforted me. Said it's okay, it's okay, Charlotte. Uh, Adam can have many wives, and so just, she comforted me. Which and that, was that a source of comfort to you? Oh yes, definitely. Um, and so, I, like I said, three years later, I married him, and we, as a plural family, we had we had a good marriage. I mean, yes, we had jealousies, but it was, we, really, we were friends. And like I said, you know, my sister, we were close and growing up. I had a son, and one of the greatest joys in my life is to <laughs> have... Uh, our son. I had him named before I was even married. I was going to have a boy and his name was going to uh, be John after my dad. And um, it was just great. But then we, of course, were still in this little community. And of course, polygamy is not a good thing. After my father was killed, Our neighbors took us to court to take our property away because we didn't have a legal deed. Because my uh, father's uncle made a covenant back then, and it wasn't on paper. 
when you don't have it on paper, you're hit. And he worked for my uncle for that property for 17 years on the farm. We went to court and thankfully there were witnesses still alive that knew my dad's uncle and they were there and um, the judge awarded us the property and our spring. So that didn't work with getting rid of us so they went up a hundred yards and they uh, undermined our, first they took our irrigation away um, and then they took our culinary water almost completely away. And I mean, our, the children were getting sick. There were, it, it was just, the place was dying, all the fruit trees. It just was mounting the injustice, the persecution. But the last straw is water. You can't live without water. And so when they went up there and undermined the uh, spring, they actually put in a whole collecting system that was completely, they broke the law. We went to court, pleaded our cause. You know, when you're, when you're a fundamentalist Mormon, you're not going to get justice. Now, Charlotte brings us into the important part of this story. You could say there are many turning points for Adam Swap, how he sort of turns from, you know, a normal Mormon kid growing up in Utah to this radical terrorist. One of them is being converted to the principle. Maybe it's getting married in plural marriage. But Charlotte talks a lot in her interview, also with Sacred Girls Ministries, about how she was persecuted as a child. I mean, they she talks about as a kid, they would have um, things written on their home. Their home would be vandalized when they would go to the store in the wintertime. People would throw snowballs at them. One time someone killed a rabbit and rubbed the blood all over their property. I can imagine that, like early Mormons, the sense of persecution makes it easier to justify violence because it's happening to you. But Charlotte's talking about this as they are trying to live their little lifestyle on this property, trying to recover from the death of her father, feeling very bitter, very angry at the government and at the outside world. They get into this war with their neighbors over land rights. So I'm going to let Adam talk about how he responds to that. So certain things in our family, um, there was a spirit of uh, us against them. And, you know, our neighbors, they, we, we lived in the middle of a 180-acre farm of John's relatives. They were modern-day church. He had a little three-acre parcel right in the middle of their place and they didn't like us. And they took our irrigation water and then they undermined our 
is actually the city of Marion undermine our, our head house to our spring. And all of these things just emboldened and uh, our feeling of being persecuted and us against the world. And in reality, you were being persecuted. Well, yeah, there was a there was definitely an element of persecution. Um, whether or not we helped to bring that on or not, um, as I got reading later, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And I thought of that when I read that. Yeah, why don't we just leave? <laughs> but. Taking our water was a big deal. And that was kind of the main catalyst that set me on a course to where I went down and blew up the Mormon church. Um, I'd went up, tried to take the water back. They had put up a head house above ours, a couple hundred feet above our head house where they had dug down to the strata and they'd taken the water and there was a certain strata of water and they got gravel and pipes and drained our head house by about 90%. And uh, I went up with the black ABS hose and I found a place where I could hook it into their system and I put it back into our head house and they took it and then they went up, I put, got another one and, excuse me, and this, this is all happening up in the forest, okay. And so I was digging a trench and the sheriffs came up. They'd called the sheriffs. It's their property. I was taking back the water. Well, by this time I'd armed myself. And one of the, uh, one of the teachings of really of Brigham Young, Brigham Young mainly, was you stood and you fought, you fought manfully. You did not fear the faces of your enemies. And that proved your priesthood. If you could stand up and fight, it didn't matter what the odds were. Being humble and submissive and turning the other cheek and loving your enemies is Matthew 5, 44. Right. That was yeah, that wasn't an issue. It was it was being manful, doing the right thing. That's what. So the sheriffs come up and, and I told them I wouldn't leave uh, until I had buried the pipe. And they didn't want a confrontation and they left. I buried the pipe and it was left alone for a while. Then they stopped it again. Somehow I can't remember how. But there was a, one of the people that I believed at the time had had a hand in killing John, uh, lived down on the main road, and this was Halloween time. And he had a display on his lawn of a car, there was a car parked on his lawn, and he put all these dummies, probably his kids did it, put all these dummies on the car as if the car had run into him. And it so disgusted me, I thought, here this guy had a hand in killing John, and he's got this display and I was so incensed about it and making this stand that I was making progressively. I went down that night and spray painted on his car that he had uh, 
killed John Singer. And at the same time, I went to two other houses, people that I felt at the time um, had a hand in killing John. And I really, I really provoked a fear in the valley there, which I'm really sorry that I did now, but it's just part of my story now. Uh, sometime later, they had, they had scrubbed it off and uh, anyhow, the next morning, we had a gate across our property, not my property. I lived up there as my mother-in-law's property. And there was no trespassing signs and the sheriffs came up. They knew who did it. Um, at this time, I had been writing letters to anybody and everybody I thought had a hand in John's death. Judges, lawyers, it didn't matter. If your name came up, I wrote you a letter, or I put your letter on one, it was, I think it was one big letter that I had a lot of names on. And I didn't threaten them personally, but I told them if they didn't repent, that they would, would suffer judgment, God's judgment, they'd go to hell. And so the sheriffs knew about me. And after the places were spray painted on, they came up. And uh, I says, don't, don't cross that fence. This is private property. I, to, I was armed. Well, both of them come up over the fence. And uh, I shot over their heads. And that was really, that was the turning point. Uh, okay, so we've been focusing a lot on Adam Swap right now. But another person you need to know is John Timothy Singer. He is John Singer's son, and he is absolutely a huge part of the story too. So he's going to show up in this story now as well. Now, according to Charlotte and Vicki, the family had lived with nine years of this sort of persecution, this war with the government, this idea that they are trying to just live God's will and the government and their neighbors won't let them. I don't think that we can really emphasize how that must have felt. But when your own father is killed in your own property for your beliefs, it really sort of crystallizes. And the family we already know from last episode was already trying to recreate this sort of 19th century homestead. These are really like the same similar, the similar ideas of 19th century homestead, of protecting your land, protecting your women, protecting your children. So it's no surprise that in 1988, it would be the ninth anniversary of John Singer's death. Adam Swap has a plan to make things right. As you heard in his interview, he said his stance was progressively radicalizing. He, consider, he considered himself a spiritual heir to the family, and they would have considered himself that as well. And after revelations and prayer, he hatched a plan. The plan was to take about 50 pounds of dynamite with a booster of ammonium nitrate and put it in an LDS stake center and blow it up. He, of course, does this, and we'll let him talk a little bit more about this right here.
It was a pride thing now that I look back on it. But it was also part of how you did it. And I received revelation that I was to blow up the church. And to understand the mindset, it's difficult to explain it. But you have self-fulfilling uh, visions and dreams and any little thread that you can tie together. And you build on this. And it finally came to a head to where I got dynamite and ammonium nitrate. And I watched the church, because you can see it from our place. It's through open fields, about a mile. I watched it at night to make sure no one went in it. And uh, I put together a bomb and uh, planted it and had it go off at 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, a lot of stuff happened, you know, different things. We The whole, I'm not even going to really get into the siege, but there was a 13-day siege. And uh, it ended up uh, that uh, there was a shootout. Um, my brother-in-law was shooting at dogs that they had sent at me and the bullets went through his door and uh, I got shot, shot in the chest and the arm and one of the bullets that was sent at the dogs killed an officer. And uh, I think this would be a good time. I just want to apologize to uh, the house family. I wished it had never happened. I wished I knew then what I know now. I uh, carry that burden on my heart and I uh, carry you in my prayers. I'm sorry that it happened. John Singer bears a very powerful and tragic telling of this incident. You can't see it, but in the video, his eyes are teary. They're full and heavy with regret, and I believe it's sincere. Let's talk about how, the, of course, the news goes wild. The news is all over this. They were fascinated nine years earlier with John Singer's death, and of course, this is something that they never expected would happen. Here's how the Chicago Tribune reported on the incident, quote, The family got their wish just after dawn Thursday when a police went, plan went awry. Police wanted to blind swap temporarily with a booby trap strobe light, then use a police dog to subdue him. John Nielsen, Utah's public safety director, told reporters that a loudspeaker was designed to set off the blinding light when SWAT moved in. But SWAT triggered the flash by shooting the loudspeaker with his rifle instead of moving it by hand. A Utah Prisons Department officer, Lieutenant Fred House, 35, 
The dog handler apparently thought Swap had been blinded according to plan and moved forward with his animal. He was killed by a bullet that passed below his bulletproof jacket, Nielsen said. Swap apparently fired another shot that struck an unidentified FBI agent in the chest, but was deflected by the man's bulletproof vest, Nielsen said. Police returned fire and Swap was wounded in the chest and arm. He is expected to live and Utah Governor Norman Bangeter, who said at a news conference that he authorized the police action after receiving three violent and rambling letters from Swap on Wednesday. In those letters, Swap declared his ranch, quote, an independent and free nation. Bangeter expressed particular dismay at one sentence in which Swap vowed, quote, those who would come against this my people will I verily cause to be destroyed, end quote. After Swap fell wounded in the snow, Vicki Singer and other adults inside the compound apparently opened fire on police, but surrendered after officers approached in two military armored personal carriers. A battle with police, the polygamists had told a number of people who tried to act as intermediaries and head off tragedy, which triggered the resurrection of their patriarch, John Singer, who himself died in a shootout at the same place nine years ago. Instead, the confrontation brought death to house and the disillusion of the small and bitter clan of the elder singer had died trying to keep intact after authorities tried to take custody of his children nine years ago. For nearly two weeks, police staged round-the-clock harassment of those inside the log farmhouse hoping to goad them into communicating with the authorities. Now I'm going to talk about, I'm going to share with you Vicki Singer who presents at Sunstone talking about what it was like living with the siege. I will also link to this. And this is a very dramatic Sunstone session where Vicki Singer tells her story. And then I'm going to play another clip about it in just a minute. Go ahead. Okay. I'm done. All right. I have a few notes here that I'll just go over briefly. Five minutes is not very long. But I was asked to speak on SWAT teams. SWAT teams, special weapons attack teams. I've had two different um, experiences with having been in siege-type situations that were very serious. But in our experience in 1988 at the siege at Marion... SWAT teams performed a battery of psychological war-type scare tactics finally ending in the shooting of Adam Swap. There is a listing of up to 200 officers involved in the 1988 siege at Marion. In the siege of 1978-1979 involving John Singer, there were similarities in SWAT team tactics, and it was stated as a fact that SWAT team personnel are trained to shoot to kill, not to wound or maim. This was admitted to in depositions taken by Jerry Spence from SWAT team members involved in Joan's death. I've taken some notes um, from my journal listing the tactics used in 1988 Siege at Marion. Along with these tactics, they used subtleness and lies over the news media for the public's sake. I'm sure a lot of people are naive and believe such plots. Um, I'm listing here, there were low-flying aircraft surveillance. There was low-flying aircraft surveillance constantly circling our our home. They came very low and close, and at times the whole house would just shake. There were big arc lights stationed all around our property, and it was just a blinding brightness. Um, 
you couldn't shoot the arc lights out. They would continually shoot flares into the air throughout the night, lighting up the entire sky. We heard on a scanner that they would do something to our water system, to our spring. They said over the news from command center, quote, we don't know what singers will do tonight if their water freezes up. Well, we knew that they must have some kind of plan to, quote, freeze our water up. So uh, this was not true because running water doesn't freeze. That night they went up there and cut off our water. They forced a buckshot shell into the pipe, the water uh, pipe. Uh, there was a sharpshooter that fired shots to cut off our electricity. They also had this small plane that would continue to dive at our house to try to scare us out. It kept coming over the 13-day period day period at intervals. Just It would just dive as close to our home as it could possibly come. And the sirens, I think that was one of the worst um, tactics. It was just a terrible loudness, deafening, piercing power. It made tremendous pressure upon our heads, ears, and bodies. Torturous, piercing vibrations hurt my heart area. Noise, the noise assault was very hard to bear. Of course, they had emphasized their concern for the children beforehand. This was unbearable for adults to, to go through, let alone children. So sometimes a person wonders about how much the concern is. They put a huge strobe light down on the laying right directly in front of her house, and it just, it pulsed on and off, and I've never seen such blinding brightness. The SWAT team forces came onto our property in the night. One night, we were, we got up, and we saw that they had been right outside our cabin. There were footprints in the snow. They reported to the media that we shot 70 times at lawmen. Never once did any one of her family shoot at a lawman. A lot of men. The men, Adam and John, tried to shoot the blinding lights out along with the torturous piercing sirens. And they could not, the arc lights, you can't shoot those out. But but the sirens, finally, they were able to disconnect those or something because they were just, I mean, it almost, it was devastating. It was just torturous. But anyway, this this is where any shots were directed towards those two very hard to bear tactics wasn't at any person. They announced over the media that we had dynamite in our house. We did not. We had a feeling that they may be plotting to blow us up or something similar to make it look as if we had committed suicide. And I just said, sounds a little familiar, remember Waco? Christians do not believe in suicide. Our phone lines were cut off. Only FBI could contact us and vice versa. On the 13th and last day of the siege, Adam was shot... Two tanks, big white army personnel carriers, came roaring, I mean roaring, onto the property, mowing down the gate and the trees, and we thought they were just going to mow right into our homes and just total us. We were yelled at through loudspeakers to come out. My two daughters had to carry their little babies bundled in their arms down the lane in the snow. Officers yelled at them, drop your babies, throw down your babies. They yelled it louder again, but the girls would not. My daughters said, you'll have to shoot us first. This was a very traumatic experience. We did not know that an officer had been shot. A later investigation shows that the shot that killed Fred House couldn't have come from us. That's a very hard point to bring out, though, believe me. This is a very important point that people should feel think about also SWAT teams. 
SWAT teams nor the public should automatically suppose that siege personnel are brutality or that they are crazy or a cult or clan. These types of labels tend to justify SWAT teams' actions. Persons related or involved with a siege incident are largely labeled in this way to offset credibility to their cause or religious beliefs. Our founding forefathers can be referred to as cultists. Many of them belong to the fraternity known as Freemasonry, which throughout the history has been labeled a cult and have been persecuted. There may be something, a principle, far more than meets the eye at stake. When persons stand upon Doctrine and Covenants section 98, the Constitution and or the Declaration of Independence, they are ridiculed and looked upon as rebels by the system. George Washington said, Government is not reason. It is not eloquence. It is force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who decree unjust statutes and to those who continually record unjust decisions to deprive the needy of justice and to rob my people of their rights. I know how this hurts to suffer under the above. I was asked to comment on Waco. Since this is supposed to be a five-minute statement, I'll keep it short. Okay. From all I've observed and read, I will say it was a horrendous holocaust, a mass murder. Read Gary Knoll's investigative report and weep. Thank you. When we listen to Vicki tell her story, I can't help but think about the language she uses. For me, as a Mormon girl, everything about her talk is familiar to me, right down to her cadence and her accent and the way that she cites scriptures. I can't help but think of how early Mormon saints would have felt about persecution. It's very similar. If you look at the same context of early Mormon saints being rebellious against their government, if they felt similarly justified. Now, this particular Sunstone talk uh, made the news because of what would happen in the Q&A after. Of course, this was held in 1995. It was after, you know, long after the standoff had happened. But someone happened to be in the audience related to Fred House. Of course, Fred House is the officer that was killed. And you just heard Vicki talk about it. And in quite a dramatic, emotional Q&A, the mother of Fred House stands up and confronts Vicki. And I'm going to play that for you here so you can hear it. Thank you. Thanks to the members of the panelists for speaking to us. Now, we can go to your questions. If you have some that are really urgent, otherwise I have some written down that I would like to cover. But if you have a question or comment that you'd really, really like to make, raise your hand or stand up and make it. Yes, ma'am. I'd like to make one comment. Take the stand. It was my daughter's husband and her three children that were killed by the singer swaps. 
And this has been a terrible thing in our lives for nine years. And you were wrong, Vicki. You were wrong. He was killed by the bullet that came out of your house. My son, John Timothy Singer, is the most beautiful young man. When he, when no one knew that anyone had been shot. And when he heard that, he was, he was in shock. It's so hard to bear either side of our tragedy. My son's in prison. He's in a wheelchair. He's in a double prison. And I know how hard it is to lose a father and a husband and a son. I know it's hard. Um, there's been, they, I don't have the names, but a lady came to me the other day. She didn't know I was going to speak here, and I didn't tell her because I've been praying, Lord. If I'm supposed to speak there, please just bring it together because I don't know what to say. I'm kind of bashful. It's been hard. This lady came and she said, Vicki, I have something to tell you. She said, I've got a home up behind you over on the south of, of you. And we were fixing it up during this time that the siege was going on. Uh, what happened? She said, they, were, they had come up the very day. The 13th day, the day that Fred House was killed. And she didn't know what was going on. There were barricades, and she wasn't able to go up the lane, up the road. And she asked the officer, she said, um, we need to get up to her home. And he says, well, we'll have to escort you. But she says, what's, what's going on? And he said, he said, an officer killed another officer. My, my sister's daughter dated an officer. He said, we... They killed their own man. It's very hard. People think we're mean, hateful, vengeful. If they could see my son right now, they see a most beautiful soul. He studies the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. He studies in prison. And he does not waste his time. But he said, Mother... I've thought this over so many times, and he said, there's no way. There's no way. My daughter, if she could just stand and speak one minute and tell what this private investigation found out, I wish she would, because it's not easy to have to bear some of the things we've had to bear. Listen, only God in heaven knows the whole story. And God bless you so much. Hi, my name is Heidi Singer. I'm the oldest daughter of John Singer. I talked to the private investigators concerning Fred House and the autopsy reports. Our bullets that Dad had saved for years were very old. They said that we had nothing whatsoever that would have made a clean sweep through his body and make a dent in his bulletproof vest. We had nothing that would do that but that our bullets would mushroom and make a horrible rip through anything that we shot. 
This is proven. Courts, I don't trust in the system. I don't trust in the courts, what they say. I have seen so many lies. When we would tell people through code, through our windows, even the news media would turn that around. We couldn't find one person to report the truth of what we were stating. And we knew beforehand what they were planning on doing by them saying, oh, I think they're, they might run out of heat. heat. They might, uh, we don't know how much heat supply they have. I said to mom, we've got to go get the wood. It was at the lower house. Well, we go down there with our snowmobiles. There's what, 10, 15 men standing there coming up right where our wood was. They knew where we got our heat. We had to take the snowmobile, put a plastic bag on the snow, and drag all of our fuel up. So, Now, unfortunately, the audio cuts off there, so we don't get to hear what the rest of what Heidi says. Heidi Singer, you'll remember, was the first wife to Adam Swap. And I'm going to talk about what happens to her in just a minute, but it's interesting that you hear this really emotional exchange, and, and I accidentally said it was Fred House's mother. It's his mother-in-law that spoke, was very tearful. You'll notice that Vicki was still maintaining the innocence of her son, John Timothy Singer. If you juxtapose that with Adam Swap now, his interview that he gave just a few years ago, he is taking full responsibility for that. He doesn't seem to think it's a government conspiracy anymore. He seems to think that... Um, they were responsible for the death of Fred House. But you can imagine how hurtful that would have seemed to have your son-in-law killed in the standoff and to have Vicki and her daughter Heidi maintain that it was a government conspiracy, that the government did it themselves. And there is still a large group of people that do believe it was a government conspiracy, that do believe that the government set up their own to die to make the singers look, look bad. So as a recap, Adam Swab has a revelation that he is going to resurrect John Singer on the ninth anniversary of his death if he blows up a stake center. He does blow up the stake center. It results in the FBI descending on their compound. They get a 13-day standoff with the government. They have around nine children on the compound between the ages of 10 months and 17 years, and they're heavily armed. The government does a siege. They, uh, as you heard Vicky describe, they try to draw them out um, in a variety of different ways to get Adam Swap out of there, and it doesn't work. So it ends with um, a plan where they're going to blind them with some lights. So Adam Swap and Fred, and sorry, Adam Swap and John Timothy Singer decide to shoot the lights out. According to them, they shoot out the lights, but their bullets miss, and one of John Timothy Singer's bullets hits Fred House. Fred House, of course, thinks that the plan is going on as usual, and he goes forward with his dog, and that is when he is killed by John Timothy Singer, who thought that the dogs were coming after Adam Swap. So it's this chaos and confusion, and an officer ends up dying, and of course, um, Adam Swap is injured as well. When the government comes in with the armored tanks, uh, they do take all the children from the log farmhouse, and... John Timothy Singer and Adam Swap both receive federal prison terms. 
Each of them was convicted of manslaughter at the state level. And even Vicki Singer um, was convicted as well. She was sentenced to five years in prison, followed by five years of probation. Swap, of course, there's this great picture that we posted on the last episode of him coming to the courthouse with his arm, his injured arm wrapped, and he's wearing this sort of moccasin-skinned um, jacket, looking like a rebel. He's, he declares that God would say that he would not serve any time and, you know, has a revelation that he wouldn't serve. Of course, that doesn't happen. He does serve. He began serving his federal sentence up until 2006, and then he started his manslaughter s- sentence, um, and he had several parole hearings to get out. And he was finally released from parole on July 9th of 2013 with the help of Fred House's widow, who wrote a letter um, saying that she believed that his that she forgave him and believed that he was sincere in his remorse. John Timothy Singer was released from Utah State Prison in October 2006. He served both of his terms as well, and Vicki Singer ended up serving six years in California. When Swap was released, it made the news. He was 52 years old. He was accompanied by his family members who all came in support to get him out of the San Pete County Jail. man who shot and killed a Utah corrections officer during a 13-day standoff will soon have freedom for the first time in 25 years. The Utah Board of Corrections has granted parole to Adam Swap. In 1988, Swap bombed an LDS meeting house in Camas. Lieutenant Fred House was killed in the standoff that followed. The Corrections Board says Swap has shown great remorse and rehabilitation. He'll be released in July. He, during his time in prison, he had converted, he became a born-again Christian. Here's what he said in a statement as he was released. Quote, I desire when I get out of prison to live my life in such a manner that my family, friends, neighbors, and community would find my presence in their lives a benefit and a blessing. He claimed that he was a different man. He said that prison was the best thing to ever happen to him. Of course, Heidi Swap, who we just heard in the Sunstone Q&A, who was his first life wife, leaves him shortly after he goes to prison. But Charlotte stayed with him and raised all the children while they were while Adam was in prison, they kind of joke in their their videos with Sacred Groves Ministries that, you know, when she would have her conjugal visits with him in prison, that she got to see him more then than she did when she was a plural wife. But she stayed by him. Um, he Adam Swap claims he coped with the rocky prison experience by reading from the New Testament. Here he discovers the concept of grace, which he had never really understood. It was really unfamiliar to him in Mormonism because Mormonism is, of course, based on works before grace, which a lot of Christians find heretical. He read the Bible so many times it began to convert him to being a born-again Christian. He says in this interview that he read the Bible 88 times, 88 times in six years. After serving over 25 years in prison, he was released with a letter of recommendation from Anne, the widow who was shot by the officer killed that day. And now Swap has devoted his life to God, just like before, but in a different way, with a ministry of being a born-again Christian. John Timothy Singer is also a born-again Christian, and he you'll find him, he, he and um, others like him go to the Manti pageant to try and deconvert Mormons out of Mormonism into mainstream Christianity. We haven't heard a lot from John Timothy Singer. He's kind of laid low, but 
I want you to hear his testimony about being born again, because I think that this sums up where the story has been left for now. This clip that I'm going to share has John Timothy Singer really ardently talking about his faith now. In the background, you will hear music. The music is from the Manti Pageant. And for those who don't know what the Manti Pageant is, it's a very famous Mormon pageant that is put on every year in Manti, Utah, close to where, actually, Adam Swap grew up. In Manti, they recreate the story of the Book of Mormon on the hill And I went there as a youth many times. It was some of my favorite memories. We would go down for what we called youth conference, where the whole youth from my area would take a bus, and we would drive down and spend a few days there watching this pageant or do it in a day trip. It was great fun. In this video, you can see John Timothy Singer standing in front of the barricades, where I assume um, he is standing with other protesters to show that Mormonism is now corrupt and to relate people back to Jesus. And in this, in this interview, it's also strange. Listen to how he sort of shies away from his past. He, he uses careful language. At one point, he talks about being in prison, and he talks about a bunk instead of, and then he corrects himself and says bed. And I think that's an interesting thing to state where he's at. Not that I think that he's trying to hide it. I just think that it, it shows this idea of being born again. And it asks a lot of really important questions. What do you do when you have experienced something like this in your past because of your faith? It appears that these men retreat back into faith, just a different kind of faith. My name is John Timothy Singer. I was born and raised in a Mormon home. Um, We believed in Jesus, but we weren't really taught about Jesus. Um, We were taught more about Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and um, John Taylor. We knew more about them than Jesus Christ. Um, Later on in life, I had an incident in my life where I started really studying the uh, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. And then I got to the point in my life where I decided it was time to read the Bible. So I picked up the Bible and started reading it, and I realized I could not understand anything I was reading. And what had happened is, I sat the Bible down, I prayed to God, I said, Lord, I can read it, I understand the words, but I, I can't understand it. So I picked the Bible up three days, oh no, I asked the Lord to help me, help me understand it. I picked the Bible up three days later, start reading, I understand it. The Lord lets me know that to understand His Word is a blessing from Him. Which blew me away because I, all, I believe that the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price was His Word. So, um, started dedicating myself to the Bible. I still wasn't sure about Mormonism. I wasn't convinced it wasn't of God. I had a lot of people come and challenge me. I put up an argument. But uh, I got to the point where I was studying with a Jehovah's Witness. And um, the Jehovah's Witness, we didn't know very much back then. But I went to Jehovah's Witness Church one night and I was blown away by the way they took the scriptures and distorted them. It was just phenomenal to me. So anyway, I, uh, years later, I, didn't, I wasn't going to the Jehovah's Witness Church. Years later, I got visited by Jehovah's. They came to my house, knocked on the door, and said they wanted to study the Bible. So I thought, okay, let's do it. I already knew we weren't going to be studying the Bible. We were going to be studying their literature. But that's okay. I wanted to figure out what was wrong with this religion. 
So we started studying. We stayed up all night one night. I read their whole history. And I realized that uh, it was a lot of it was like Mormonism. And so I decided, well, since I'm reading their history, I might as well read the history of Mormon Church. Well, I started studying adamantly from morning till night, for months after month after month. And I got to the point where I sat up in bed and I said, Lord, I know that Joseph Smith is not your prophet. And when I had said that, I saw dark chains. And these were big, big link chains on my shoulders. Now, I thought I already knew Jesus. They fell off my shoulders. And at that moment, I knew what it meant to be free in Christ. So, after that, I completely left Mormonism. I still study the Mormon literature for the benefit of my family and others that I um, speak with so that I can actually make the comparisons between the true Word of God aside from the false teachings of Joseph Smith. Um, I've said this more than once. Um, Jesus came when he died. The veil was rent from top to bottom. It gave access to every man, woman, and child to the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our everything. If you need more than Jesus, then you don't know him. Um, my thing is, is if you are in the Mormon church, go do your research. Don't be afraid to. If the, if, if, if the elders are telling you not to, what are they afraid of? Because I'll tell you what, anyone can come and challenge me on the Bible, I am not afraid. I stand on the rock, which is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. If you can't do the same in your religion, there's a problem. I'll tell you what, when people used to challenge me, I used to get, I used to get standoffish. Why? One day I was sitting in my, right by my bunk, my bed, and I said to my, I was very angry because I was challenged. I had to analyze that anger. Why was I angry? Why was I so angry? If I'm standing on what is true in Mormonism, then where's this anger coming from? Now that I'm in the Bible and I, and I get challenged, I don't get angry. I'm patient. I'm loving. I'm, I, I care for that other person because you know why? I was lost too. And I needed to be found. It took, it took Jesus 20 years to get to this hardened person, but he got there. So, give your life to Jesus. Go do this as well. Go look at the archaeology of the Bible, then go do the same for the Book of Mormon. You'll be astounded. You will not find archaeology for the Book of Mormon. But I'll tell you what, you get on the internet, you can spend months looking at everything that the Bible has to present. Jesus Christ is the answer. We are going to end with the same presentation that we started with. Ogden Kraut, again, the famous Mormon fundamentalist writer and thinker, talking about the siege. Thanks for listening. Nothing is of greater injury to the children of men than to be under the influence of a false spirit when they think they have the Spirit of God." Unquote. Well, revelations have been claimed on the basis of long pilgrimages, great sacrifices, wars, and killings. The LeBarons and Lafferty's took a course of killing because the revelations they claimed were from God. Over a hundred different prophets with their revelations have left the LDS Church since its organization. 
I believe I've met just about a hundred of them myself uh, wanting me to join their club. <clears throat> well, we live in, a day, in, in an age of deception, political, economic, moral, and certainly religious. It seems like everything has about as much genuineness to it as uh, professional wrestling. Jesus warned us that almost the very elect would be deceived. In other words, he's saying everyone except the very elect will be deceived. There have been many controversial and conflicting revelations to the LDS Church as well as questionable revelations to people outside the Church. Generally speaking, it is very strange that so many men will neglect or disobey a true revelation from God and yet they'll suffer and endure misery or prison or death defending a bad revelation. Do we as individuals have a responsibility to, to avoid personal deception? I found a good quote by uh, a preacher by the name of Leonard Withington of the First Church in Newbury, Massachusetts about a hundred years ago. He said, there is great guilt, undoubtedly, in deceiving the people, but it is not so generally understood that there is some guilt in being deceived. For we have, for to have any corrupt interest which makes us willing to believe a lie is almost equal to the depravity that tells it. Indeed, the one character stands very near the other. If we are deceived, it is because there is something in us that lends itself to the deception. If the heart were calm and pure, it would not so often be deceived." Unquote. to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.